0: So I thought this week it would be nice to just uh, go back through and listen to some of the guests that we've had on the show and hear what they have to say before we enter the midterm to remind us of how important it is uh, that that we go out and vote in this midterm election.
1: I think we should listen back, see what uh, history tells us so we're not doomed to
0: repeat it. We had a lot of good guests this, year, this uh, season, didn't we?
1: I think the best guest of all was my puppy dog and my cat. No offense to anyone else, just I really love my cat. There and my cat. dog.
0: Okay, so this was our first guest, and I asked her a question about LGBT rights. Yeah. People. This is one of the first big questions I asked. Uh, I read a study this past week that said that 52% of transgender non-binary people have attempted suicide in the last year, have attempted suicide in the last year, and within the entire uh, LGBTQI plus community um, it's been 42% among all of uh, us mm-hmm. in our community that identify as such that have attempted that and I just I want to get your perspective on that and what you think and, and what's co- leading to that maybe and, and how we can maybe go forward well, with
2: that. I mean studies have shown that if you use somebody's if you don't use somebody's dead name or pronoun and use the one that they prefer, then that goes completely down. Like that's that's the, the first step is uh-huh. to honor and respect people's pronouns and the name that they choose to go by. But when you see people take with uh, Amy that just lost Jeopardy the other night, um, she was going for so long you know, the they build her as <clears throat> the longest winning streak by a woman on jeopardy. And of course, people come out saying, Well, that's a him, that's he. And I'm that just boils my blood to hear that. Simply because there could be a kid watching. There could be a kid reading the comments. And if if it's not a child who is trans or non-binary hearing this, then they're going to hear it from their classmates because they learned that at home.
0: No, I agree. <clears throat> that was Stella, our first guest in the show. That was back in February when we had just started talking about uh, or continued our conversation with the assault on transgender rights from these uh, legislators.
3: I, uh, I pro- I'll i go out on the limb and say I'll disagree with uh, her statement. To me, the reason why a lot of, uh, especially the trans youth, are higher rates of suicide attempts as well as successes is because of the demonization that we see in the American society. saying uh, we get it from uh, the media, we get it from our political leaders saying trans individuals are perversions, abominations, they're freaks. They don't deserve human rights. And when you're young and you keep seeing the images and you keep hearing the degradation, the name calling, it to me wears on one's self-esteem. And to me, that's why the rates are so high, because also I think another reason we can add is the lack of mental health facilities and access to mental health.
0: Uh, Lucy, do you remember we had Olivia on the show? Yeah.
3: Mm-hmm.
4: Oh,
5: and what they don't understand. That's
4: like to me, that's how I break it down in my head Is it makes you, something that you don't understand and that makes you uncomfortable because it's not your life now means that you feel like you get to weigh in on what other people do with theirs. And that's why our entire country is completely passed backwards and makes zero sense.
2: Do you remember that
0: episode? What's up? Do you remember that episode?
1: Yeah, I'm just hoping that they're not as like I'm hoping they understand now the the difference between defund the police and abolish the police are so really not saying that there should be you know none no enforcement of laws or whatnot, but that like they just don't need tanks and AR-15s or M4s.
6: The term two-spirit was created in 1990 at the Indigenous Lesbian and Gay International Gathering in Winnipeg and specifically, quote, specifically chosen to distinguish and distance Native American First Nations people from non-Native peoples. The primary purpose of coining a new term was to encourage the replacement of the outdated and considered offensive anthropological term verbatim and i'm part uh cherokee i'm about 20 25 cherokee and um i consider myself two-spirit and it's an un- umbrella term used by some indigenous north north americans to describe native people in their communities who fulfill a traditional third gender ceremonial and social role in their cultures i'm not really active in my culture because I don't really know anyone who is Cherokee Um, my grandmother is considered black Cherokee and uh, Cherokee black people were uh, sort of like a parallel group within the Cherokee tribe Um, literally the information about my heritage was sort of kept away from me It was uh, sort of like whitewashed. So I've been trying to learn as much as possible about it. And um, so what I learn is through the internet, uh, through some people, like uh, friends that I might make over the internet, but there's not very many other third gender people out there. Um, So just, there's just a few. And uh, we, online, we sort of band together and we encourage each other as much as possible. Um, In terms of makeup, I really had this drive towards learning about makeup and the sort of strength it would give me in terms of my gender identity to see how well I could present in terms of um, becoming Kenya. Uh, My birth name is Ken, and I added the YA just as a sort of like something that sounds positive, something that sounds uh, joyful. And... We have Kenya. And I started out with watching a lot of YouTube videos. And eventually that turned into purchasing makeup because I was thinking I would like to be a drag queen or drag artist. Um, Watching a lot of uh, uh, RuPaul shows, Um, being a fan of RuPaul's from from long ago, I have some of his vinyl records from back when he was, you know, just a music artist and a drag queen. And then going on from there, I was thinking, um, I think I'd rather bring to the surface who I really am inside as a trans person. So what I did was I learned about makeup. I learned about hair just mainly by watching YouTube videos, being self-taught, like a lot of people in the LGBT communities. And um, I've really, uh, I really feel like I've I've really come up. Um,
0: So I'm I'm, um, um, oh, can I ask you a question? Yes. So when you were growing up there in the 90s, when you were seeing those things, did you really, what other types of things did you see in that community as far as representation? Like, did you feel, at that, how did you feel being at that time, you know, in the nineties, like looking out there in the world, did you feel that you could be who you wanted or how, what was like, what was the side, like societal dynamics back then? Could you go like elaborate into that?
6: Okay, Um, sure. Um, Okay, so I started college in the late eighties and I didn't really get to be, I guess, Connected with people in college until it was right around 1990, 91, 92. And that's when I started really going out to clubs and really starting to get to um, sort of be a part of the whole college life. And what my friends and I would do is we would drive down to TJ, uh, Tijuana, Mexico, and we would cross the border. We'd park the car and we would usually stay over the weekend in the hotel. And um, we would get our hands stamped uh, uh, at the various nightclubs. We would go back to the hotel room and, you know, get, maybe catch a, a nap or, or, or eat dinner early. Maybe we would, you know, even party in the, in the hotel room. And then we would go back and we would have all the nightclubs. And one particular club we went to was called Los Equipales, Transvesti Bar. And it's just right across the street from the Highlight Palace in Tijuana. Back then, it was just a just huge nightclub. It was like a you know an anthro. It was a big place where you know you would get hundreds of people into that club, and there were drag shows that, that took place all weekend long. Um, I I took my friends in, and I even took a photograph inside the nightclub, and I have that photograph to this day of what it looked like with all those guys all in the, in, in the walkway, in the corridor of the nightclub, looking down at the stage and the, the, the beautiful drag queen uh, performing on stage. And one weekend, there was a dragnet that went through town and the police, the federales went and arrested and jailed everyone that was inside that club all the people went to jail. I don't know why they were jailed. I don't know why there was a, a, a reason to incarcerate everyone that was in this particular gay bar, but it happened. And there's no information. There's very little information online about it. And that was the sort of thing that happened in the 1990s, in the early 90s. Um, eventually the club closed. I'm sure it's opened up uh, under a new name. Um, but now there's a new sort of breed of, of, of LGBT club in TJ where drag is normal. Drag is synonymous with, with the, uh, with the gay bar, uh, experience in that town. And, um, it's, it's not as, uh, taboo as it once was, um, but that was one of my experiences. Uh, going to to uh, TJ was was, or going out in the '90s, going to a club that it was it was it was very risky to go to a place like this because you didn't know if if you were allowed to be inside the club and you didn't know if uh, this sort of thing could happen. Now that's totally unspeakable. Um, you go into a club like uh, Colibri. Or you go to uh, Hawaii, or you go to um, Latino bar—that sort of thing would never happen. But back in the '90s, unfortunately, it did.
1: I had to do something similar when I was in the uh, the military, because I was in during Don't Don't Tell. Wow. Yeah, they would they would do stuff like that. You'd have like one of the higher ranking chiefs that would be in a place like that to just kind of like scope out to see any faces mm-hmm. they would kick people out for being gay out of the military with an oth instead of an honorable discharge and now you can mm-hmm. change it but it's like for some of them it's been like 10 15 years like there was somebody talking on it who had been kicked out 25 years previously and uh for being gay while serving and mm-hmm. um they were getting their uh discharge change finally and it was like shit was scary especially since one of the people I was dating was kicking people out and I was like how can you live with that like kicking people out for doing what we're doing and that was ultimately what ended that relationship because he was like oh this is you know this this is our duty and I'm like ah sorry fam that's not good enough for me
0: now that interview was with Kenya as we sat down with her back in April And is in May, we actually had an opportunity to sit down with six women from Arkansas. Unfortunately, we don't have time to air all of that, but we thought we'd take a listen into some of the highlights of that episode.
4: She said that really stuck out to me. That kind of flows into my own story of me and my sister and why banning abortion and banning access to essential health care is so impactful in a negative way. So she was talking about being bold and some people do not have the privilege to be able to just be like, Oh, well, I'm going to play it safe in my words. They have to be heavy, hard and bold in their words when they are coming at the church or the foundation of all of the misogyny and the patriarchy. And, um, so I'm going to talk about my sister tonight. I might get a little emotional. I'm shaking a little bit, but I think it's a very important thing to talk about um so me and my sister grew up in central Arkansas poor as fuck we we grew up in sheer poverty in an abusive home and the church did nothing to protect us the CPS did nothing to protect us the system did nothing to protect me and my sister and a judge was actually paid off to give us back to our sexual abuser Um, and so I can relate on a lot of levels of what you're saying, even as a white woman, I can relate as well as I think a white woman can, obviously it is not the same, but having gone through that and seeing the system betray my family and me and my sister in the way that it has, it's opened my eyes in a lot of ways. And it, yep. it gives me a platform of empathy and compassion and understanding for the harm that has happened to the indigenous people. People and etc. But um, I, I said all this to say my sister committed suicide last January, and um, this is a very heavy triggering topic. So I just want to give a trigger warning that this is not going to be something that's easy to listen to. But um, she has two boys, and she was a single mom, and she could not access abortion. Um, the last thing she did before she swallowed the pills was video a clip a video clip and texted it to me and so literally her last words to me were they wouldn't let me get an abortion they wouldn't let me get a tubal because I didn't have permission from a non-existent husband because she was in her early 20s she was too young to make that decision what if she changed her mind what if she married somebody later that wanted a kid and then she couldn't give it to him like there was all these like heavy misogynistic tones of denial for her own bodily autonomy and because of the level of trauma that we grew up in she knew that she would not be able to be the mother that she wanted to be and because of that she carried tremendous guilt and i will say this because i know that there are people that will rebuttal and say well birth control is a thing close your legs. Well, I hate that shit so much because she was on birth control. She asked for the permanent birth control. She, she asked for the preventative care to prevent an unwanted pregnancy and they denied her. And um, she was so distraught over not being able to process the level of trauma that we lived through that she took her life and she wasn't able to be the mom to her boys. And a lot of people talk about, oh, well, at least you have your nephews. Like she had two kids, you know, they always want to like guilt trip. Well, you know, these kids are now here, but these kids are now living with lifelong trauma and PTSD and they are 10 and 12 years old and they have watched their mom commit suicide and they have to live with this. They have to live with this. And it, it angers me to my core. I obviously love my nephews fiercely, but it, it goes to the foundational problems with society and how we are not supporting women. We are not supporting children. We are not protecting children. They talk about, well, these children deserve homes. Well, I'm sorry. CPS had pictures of me naked with bruises from my neck to my knees and they did nothing. So You're going to tell me that all these children need to come forth into the world in these homes that are not healthy, that are, that are not good places for these children. For what? For more traumatized people. That makes me so angry to my core. I love my nephews, but here's the thing. If society had protected us when we were little, if society had been there when we needed it as children, she may not have had the trauma to feel like she needed an abortion or to feel like she needed to commit suicide. And so there's just so many building blocks that go to this. This is so much more than just about abortion, but this, this, it, it all plays in so deeply and just, there's just this foundation and it's just crumbling. So. It is, it absolutely
0: yeah. is. When, and, and especially, when we talk about things like that and, and we may not, a lot of us may not be aware it. we we're finding that like, even, saying, uh, commit suicide is terminology. We, we like to say died by, uh, died by suicide. Not to, yes, not to, I'm, I'm, I'm still, not, no, 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 I don't want to correct I, you. I,
4: no, you're totally fine. I'm still getting used to seeing it that way because yeah. honestly, like that shook me to my core. She didn't, and, commit. A, she
0: didn't have it. She, she was put in that position because of the circumstances. Exactly. And mm-hmm. so she died by suicide, unfortunately, exactly. because that was, when, when, when it gets to that point, it's, it's not, it's not something it's, it's, and now, and so speaking of inclusive language, when we talk about uh, reproductive rights, we we're not just speaking about, about women and Brandy, I think that you would have firsthand experience on exactly that, uh, on why that language actually is very important.
7: Yeah. Um, my, my two kids, both uh, assigned female at birth, Um, came out as trans males. Um, They use he, him pronouns. Um, But they also have a very good friend of theirs who is a a non-binary person, um, also assigned female at birth, um, uses they, them pronouns. Um, All of these are uterus-owning individuals, people, you know. So when we look at reproductive rights and access to... um, uh, quality health care for these individuals. Um, Planned Parenthood is is one of the best places for um, them to go because they give them, uh, they, they do testosterone, they do prescriptions for testosterone injections for um, people that are uh, lower income, you know, things like that. So I, my children have told me that they do not plan having biological children which when I was growing up my mother was like oh I want grandchildren you and your sister have to give me grandchildren and you know yes my sister and myself each had one biological child and we were done like there was no no we're not going through this again um and when my kids tell me you know I don't want to bring a human being on this planet, in this country, in this state that is so beyond fucked up when there are children already in the system, um, in foster care, um, needing to be up, you know, adopted. And even more to that fact, the amount of queer children in the system, in foster care that need homes that show, representation of of the queer community you know that's kind of where they're at but you know one 16 ones 18 and I have told them I'm like look y'all got your entire lives to figure out children adoption that whole thing but if you do not want to put your body your mind you know all of that through the trauma of carrying a pregnancy uh you know going off of your testosterone so you could potentially get pregnant with a donor, all of those things, you know, don't. I don't see why you would have to. You know, it's not a thing that, you know, I'm not one of those, you know, old school Southern ladies that like, oh, I must have grandchildren. No, I don't care. I don't care. It's not my body. Why am I going to tell my children what to do with their personhood and make them go through a trauma that that is childbirth or child raising, for that matter, in a country that does not care about anyone if they are not, not you know, shiny white people.
8: White- I think the first thing we have to do. I think we have to make a lot of noise. I think we have to be loud. I think we have to bring our networks and our, we have to bring our people in with us and along with us. If we're going to march anywhere and I'm all for it, I'm all for the marches and the the solidarity. But if we're going to march anywhere, we got to march to the voting booth. (laughs) We got to get everybody in the world who feels like we do here registered and we got to get them out to vote this mm-hmm. is such a huge problem and i'm going to refer to, our, to arkansas again but only 50 of our eligible voters vote here so people want to call us a red state i call us a state with an identity crisis mm. we don't know what we are we don't know what we would choose because we can't get 50 percent of the freaking people to show up So we've got to make this very personal to everybody that we can. We've got to talk about how Roe v. Wade is not just a women's issue, how it affects everybody, everybody's reproductive futures. We've got to talk to conservatives who have used IVF and make them understand what fetal personhood means to those frozen embryos that they didn't use. now are all of a sudden going to have a right to the same rights that we all do sitting here. They've got a right to life, right? So we've got to find ways to have these conversations and build bridges with people that we might not always find ourselves in coalition with. We might not not always find ourselves voting the same way for, but it's those conversations, those difficult topics and difficult subjects like we're talking about now that have to be tackled in some way before we can we can begin to make inroads and we can begin to create that larger systemic change and maybe not, you know, tear the whole house down, but reset the foundation a little, you know, Mm -hmm. the way it should have been in the beginning, if we were all included in writing our country's documents. Um, But I think, you know, it begins with making noise. It begins with activism, but it has to end up in the voting booth or we're not going to make any
9: change whatsoever. It's about community it's about it's about being helpful it's about just being there boots on the ground it's always going to be mm-hmm. better than you know just like trying to do um I don't know just trying to again I never want to speak ill of um of you know politics or anything but uh I, I just again as an indigenous woman I don't feel like anything that I've really tried to advocate for has very been on a forefront and until I see you know a woman you know kind of like presenting in power in and I hope and I hope that you know is substantiated here in the coming years um I I don't know if I'm gonna have any hope for anything because again I'm very pro-matriarch I'm very you know very very feminist I'm very very pro-woman I am very very pro-trans I'm very very pro-two-spirit you know again Ah. trans LGBT community was here before first contact like looking through a decolonized like lens when I say she her that is anyone that I you can see like presenting I had this conversation I was like it's so crazy because when you see someone presenting like you should automatically know so everyone yes. getting it mixed with pronouns and stuff it's not that hard but again we're so indoctrinated we are so indoctrinated that we have made ourselves ignorant when we know the truth that's right there but we second guess ourselves because we want to fall into the mainstream again western capitalistic society and i am not having that you know my dumb son identifies um and i want just for them to you know and he's he's 12 I want twelve year olds to be able to like again, identity is different than trying to groom and over sexualize a child. So that's obviously not happening. look at where we're we at don't right do now. that. And yeah. we don't we're do right. that in yeah, this country. And that's and that's, that's the thing. And that's and that's the thing that upsets me so much with, with,
0: with these politicians is that they're coming up with solutions to problems that don't exist and that are not at
8: happening all. in yeah, the classroom sorry. right now at all.
10: And oh, the thing is, we could
8: have a solution. This would not even if we had appropriate sex ed. If we had access to contraception, to contraception, this wouldn't even really be an issue. We could reduce with policy instead of ban with potential great harm. And. If, like if we had all if we had all had our voices included in these conversations from the, the beginning, kids would know people would have access to things that they need. People, you know, if you're pregnant, you wouldn't be terrified that you might not get prenatal care or you might not have child care or you know your capitalist society is gonna push
9: you back to your job in two weeks. Like because they don't care about we, moms. They do not care about working moms at no. all. They do not so, working. moms. We, so uh, they we, just have to,
8: we have to change the whole, the whole conversation and the whole dynamic around this. And I am, I am very pro prevention. I am very pro like knowledge is power. And the more I can learn about everyone here's experiences, the better off, more enriched my life is going to be and the better I I am going to be able to help enrich other people's lives at some point when given the the opportunity and boots on the ground is so important I think when we had our march in Little Rock I turned to somebody beside me and I said you know we should have a tent out back where you can just get free IUDs (laughs) you know (laughs) where people can just get you know get a a implant on shot or whatever they want just in a private little setting but like just insert those puppies for free you know because
7: the the super majority in Arkansas's collective heads would have exploded
0: and that was a fantastic episode we sat down with alicia flores brandy evans ashley landon julie mcdonald then in may we got to sit down with Jay Lewis Van Lalen. They're the author of Sentient, which is a book about a futuristic healthscape. Well, you a more agricultural corporations do some dirty deeds. You got to check it out. It's pretty good. You address some of those those concerns that, you know, Jimbo down there on the, the corner with his big old Ford 51 and 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 the, the barbecue pit going. How are we how do
11: you have that conversation? Um, I would only have the conversation if they were open to it. Otherwise I wouldn't have the conversation at all because I'm about relationship building. And if they're not ready for that conversation, I'm not going to have it with them. So if they um, are
0: ready, what would you, how would we, we well, get,
11: I would say, um, look, I get the same, I get my protein from the same place your animals get their protein. Mm. So how would I be lacking if I'm getting my protein from the same place that your animals are getting your, their protein? We see how <laughs> Um, They're doing, I don't take a B12 supplement. I have been vegan for this July will be nine years.
0: Wow. That's incredible.
11: Um, And I'm doing fine. I had my labs drawn last October. I get my labs drawn every year. Um, All my levels were normal aside from my iron. Now I have reproductive organs. I have this wonderful thing that happens every single month where I lose blood. I do have to take an iron supplement. It is not because of my diet. It is because, unfortunately, I have, well, we won't go into it if I need to say anything more than this monthly thing that happens. I take iron for that, but I only take it for two weeks out of every month. Otherwise, I'm fine. I take vitamin D because I think it helps my mood. So we take supplements for other things anyway, right? I would rather take a supplement than have an animal suffer. So it as far as protein goes, I think it's important to acknowledge that, you know, as far as health is concerned, every one of our bodies is different and we all have different blood types um, and we all have our own internal ecosystem. It just so happens that my ecosystem does very well on a vegan diet. I'm not here to dispute that it might not be for everyone. You know, my mom, for example, She's not vegan. She knows what I do. She reads my stuff. She's my number one fan. Um, does she acknowledge that she has cognitive dissonance? Yes. However, her concern is that she has um, some health issues. She's not confident that she could go fully vegan. I'm not going to try to make my mom go fully vegan. She has to find that out for herself. We all have to decide for ourselves. What Does that mean, though, she can reduce beef? Yes, she could do that. And does she feel better? Yes. So, you know, as far as where to get protein, we do have to watch. It is important if someone were to go vegan to watch their blood, um, to get their labs done, to make sure everything's okay. But as far as protein. Um,
0: oh, there's plenty of protein to be found. There's, we, we know, the science has shown that the protein is available. There's beans, legumes. There is even the plant-based products that they're, that they're now manufacturing provide us
11: the supplement for that. The only other thing I was gonna add is that we just have to acknowledge that the USDA is in control of our food pyramid. And they're the ones that are telling us how much protein we should have. And, it's, and it's, um, it's a question of well who's really telling us where we need to be getting our food from. And we know that it is food corporations that are a part of making these decisions, a part of the USDA. Well, they, pol-
0: they they lobby the politicians.
11: That's what I mean. I don't. I'm not going to make decisions about my health. I mean, if again, it's thinking about you know, it's my body. Um, I'm going to make the best decisions for my body. I've had no issues being vegan for nine years. I've zero. I've had. I've been healthier. I've had more energy. I've had. I mean, I just feel great, and I felt consistently great. And you know, so yes, if I need to take a supplement, I may have to do that. But we also know, again, if you are diabetic, there are certain supplements that are gonna work for you. If you are um, depressed, again, there are certain supplements that are gonna be good for you. So it's not just about why I don't wanna go vegan because why would I do that? And then I'm gonna have to take vitamins. It's like, but you might have to take vitamins anyway. Your doctor might still tell you, you know, you're having issues with this and I would recommend a medication or a supplement. I'd rather take a mud, a, met, a supplement than find out that I have to be medicated because I have diabetes, I have high blood pressure, I have high cholesterol because I'm eating meat and dairy. My doctor told me, you have the best cholesterol of any patient I've ever had. Do you know why that is? It's because I don't eat dairy.
0: That's great. That's now-
11: conversations that I would have with someone. I'm healthy. I don't know what else people wanna know.
0: We got to sit down with Savannah Barker when the news of Roe v. Wade broke back on June 24th. Then, as we continued on our conversation throughout the summer, we got to sit down with Brandy Sewell as we talked a little bit of cognitive Distance" from the book Atlas of the Heart by Brene Brown. Let's take a listen to that.
12: Uh, I'd say that's overdue. Um, yes. as someone with, unfortunately with a uterus, I am horrified, terrified, heartbroken. It's just, there, there aren't enough, um, descriptors. There really yeah. aren't.
1: And these people who have been like, I never would have saw this coming to me. I feel <laughs> like, like, if you feel that this wasn't coming when they've literally been talking about doing this for like decades, truly what the fuck is what the fuck is wrong with these people like we knew what they've been after this is and this is obviously just the first domino that they plan on toppling so they can institute they can uh, essentially put their religious belief on everybody out here but it's like how do you not see this coming? And we know how they did not see this coming. A vast majority of them are just people who aren't affected because of their privilege. And they're like, I'm not the political type because politics don't affect me. Like, yes, the fuck it does. And now you're really going to see it.
12: And that's truly the heartbreaking thing about this is that anyone that thinks this doesn't, this decision particularly doesn't affect them is grossly misinformed because it affects everyone. Um, there are many people in our population that have a uterus. Yeah. Um uh, I think it's, you know, it's important that um as we have these discussions, um, uh, we don't just use the term women, but you know, our non-binary uh brothers and sisters and um our gender neutral uh, friends and those in the trans community, there are many people who have the joy or burden, however you might see it, of owning a uterus. And yeah. even beyond that, we all know somebody who does, and we are related to those people. They are friends, relatives, parents, what have you. And it's just, it's heartbreaking because like you said, this is just the first domino and it's um personally as somebody who has never wanted children, um and has grown up in a society that has always pushed that onto us, you know, um that that is expected of us for whatever reason. That I mean, it's just it feels like it's a breeding tank at this point because you're not pro-life, you're just pro-birth. So yeah, that's I- exactly
1: it. Because if they were pro-life, they would be like, you know, it'd be a great idea. Maybe we should make it to where children can make it through middle school, elementary school, middle school and high school without being shot. Maybe we should make it to where children can have food and affordable housing and affordable health care. But they don't. The moment that the that, like, fetus turns into a child by popping out of a womb, they're just like, all right, buddy, good fucking luck out there. Don't ask for anything because these are my tax dollars.
5: Yeah. So, before we got here, I, I was talking about a news story before abortion became illegal, because up until recently, abortion was illegal in Ireland, of a young woman who had cancer and who was pregnant, and the doctors would not uh, continue with her um, her her um, her chemotherapy right. because they were worried about the threat to the fetus, and she died. Correct. So, and that is not a one-off story. Others, there's been other stories like that. So if anybody's trying to give this narrative that they are pro-life, this has nothing to do with protecting life. It has absolutely nothing to do with protecting life. That is just a narrative. They're not, like you said, they're not pro-life. They're pro-birth.
12: I, I but, mean. And- That is exactly Mm -hmm. correct. I was just going to say that, you know, this, if they're really pro-life, they would be more concerned about the lives of mothers. I mean, if we really want to get into this, like you said, your story um, that you read, this isn't a one-off. This isn't um, rare occurrences. These aren't you know, extenuating circumstances, even as someone who works in healthcare, I can tell you firsthand that in the last decade, the amount of patients that come into a hospital with comorbidities is rising. And if you look at that from the perspective of now, these people are forced to give birth and you're going to tell me that none of their lives are at risk. I am one of those people. I, um, was young and naive once. And I thought that um, public service was the highest calling one could have. And I was raised in a, at the time, overly patriotic household. So I thought that joining the military was the answer. And as a result, I ended up with a um, degenerative spinal injury. And if I were to carry a child to term now, I would be lucky if I left the situation paralyzed.
13: Yeah, she um, even goes on to to show that um, having cognitive dissonance is can help promote cult-like behavior. And so there is a researcher um, that his name is. Taver and Aronson explained that in 1954, the social psychologist Leon Festinger and two of his associates infiltrated a Doomsday cult to find out what would happen if the leader's prophecy failed to be fulfilled. The leader had promised her followers that the world would end on December 21st, 1954, but that they would be picked up by a flying saucer and transported to safety at midnight on December 20th. Two researchers explained that many of her followers quit, her, quit their jobs, gave away houses, dispersed their savings in anticipation of the end, because, of course, who needs money in our space? And others waited in fear or resignation in their homes. Festinger predicted that the believers who had not made a strong commitment to the prophecy would quietly lose their faith. And those who had given away their possessions and waited with their other believers for the spaceship would double down on their belief in her mystical abilities. He predicted that even if the prophecy did not materialize, the followers who lost the most would demonstrate their increased commitment by doing, quote, whatever they could to get others to join them. At the time, this hypothesis blew the doors off of every existing theory about motivation and human behavior. It was unthinkable that people would double down once proven wrong. But by 4:45 a.m. when the spaceship was a no-show their leader shared a new vision of the world because of their strong faith that they had been s- spared as hypothesized by Festinger the most invested members responded by calling the media with their great news and they became even more invested evangelists for the group so mm-hmm. they justified themselves literally They doubled down. She also says um, prior to this that the combination of rumination and nostalgia based in like the United States from their research was destructive and disconnecting. And if you are wondering how dangerous the combination can be, think back to the insurrection at the U.S. Capitol on January 6, 2021. Or examine the strategy used by every authoritarian leader in history to exploit fears, by photoshopping a picture of yesteryear to everything in history and that giving people the things that they wanted it to be but never was to seduce people into believing that a make-believe past could exist again and give some give them someone to blame for ruining the picture and not being able to restore the mythical utopia because it is a make-believe concept that it was better back then.
0: Wow, okay, so I feel like like that whole that whole thing, like they're playing chess up there, is like even more accurate now. That is so incredible. So, so what we're what we're learning. So we always thought if you just present the evidence and the in the conclusions, then people will automatically be like, oh, well, that makes sense. Okay, cool. But apparently, I I do that. Well, it took me a long time. I used to. It took me a long time, but I got there. So so what we're seeing, the research is showing that when when people are proven wrong, they double down. And that is what's leading to what leads to this uh, ideology that's occurring nowadays, which then was used by this one individual to create an image of the past that didn't exist. And then like created an event that was in response to this nostalgic world that never existed. And then now the reason why they did it was because they were trying to restore the values of a country that is not whatever it ever was and now we're it here in 2020. One that worked
13: for them, but maybe yeah. not for everyone it as it one worked. where they felt more secure and safe but most committed to the idea. so mm. some people quietly will lose their faith in it.
2: Okay. but the so people let's who are
13: most committed to the idea or maybe have the much, most to lose because they became committed to this idea. those yeah. are the people that will double down. those are the people that would actually go and do more destructive things perhaps or you know or say or whatever to because they have more to lose they have more more to lose therefore they have to double down on what their ideal is whether it's founded in reality or not
1: In a lot of these instances you do feel like they are disconnected from reality because you know you're looking at it and if you do look at the evidence you see that crime was higher in the past all like uh objectively you can look at like money. And sure, you know, you take into account inflation and you see that in some instances, wealth was, it's a very tricky topic because now we know there's less wealth distribution and there's more hoarding and collecting of wealth. However, generally you can see that there's a trend in the positive for uh, overall wealth in general. Um, But you have these people who are just, they have kind of built into this, uh, they've kind of submitted to this I, I want to call it a cult of personality, just in general, but this like uh, more conservative belief that if we were to travel backwards into the past, it would be better. And you do see who that would benefit. It benefits cis head white guys, and that's sometimes it makes me feel like oh. And I understand we can't, we don't understand other people's emotions without talking to them. However, I feel the evidence supports the belief that they'd like to go back to that so they can consolidate their power still, still maintain this belief of I'm on cho- I'm on top of everything. And you can kind of see that with the rise of like the alt-right and whatnot. You, you can prove to them with metrics, with evidence, hey, things are getting better in some regards. You are safer now. And society is going on a better general direction, but they still default to these weird cultish behaviors of no 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 i believe this i don't believe that i believe this i don't believe that and you can see that like cognitive dissonance for a lot of the stuff that that they speak on
0: then later on in september we got to sit down with otto suzuki and brooke earhart as we explore trans representation of the media i thought that was a pretty fun interview so we're gonna take a listen to that and that's
10: what we start. yeah instead of the instead of the stereotype like people saying that you can't talk about like gay relationships or transgender people to kids. And it's like, why not? We talk about straight relationships to kids, stop making it a sex thing. And like, like it's bad when it's love is love. And it's like, normalize the fact that gay relationships are loving relationships, just like straight relationships normalize that trans people are people just like anyone else.
14: I think Speaking. that's a really point to make, I'm sorry. I no, think I have a point to make too that like a lot of times when we put these marginalized groups in like media these days a lot of the plots in these TV shows and movies are centered around that marginalized experience and maybe if we have more things that starred marginalized people but the plots were them being regular, living normal lives where it's not some tragedy surrounding their experience as a marginalized person, Mm -hmm. maybe it would be more normalized in society. We would see these people living their everyday lives. Like, I think especially Mm -hmm. with TV shows where you follow somebody's life for a few seasons and you see what it is for them to live day to day, it shouldn't always be... A traumatic experience about their identity mm-hmm. we need mm-hmm. to see more regular portrayals of these groups of people it's kind of like especially as a fat person like a lot of fat people in movies especially comedies like you see all the jokes surrounding their fatness but then when there was a show I don't know if you guys remember this corny ass show from like the 2010's Mike and Molly oh yeah And they were just in, like, their own cute, like, relationship, living everyday life, married. I think they were trying to have children at one point. It's been a really long time since I watched it. But, like, you follow them in their everyday life issues. The show wasn't about them being fat. And I think we need more of that.
1: I'd agree with that. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah.
14: Speaking of uh speaking of trans
0: identity representation in the media, Raven's home, a sequel to That's So Raven on Disney's channel, Disney channel, uh, they are coming out with their new episode that represents a trans character. Disney's first ever trans character played by Juliana Joelle, uh, will be played by the name Nikki. She's a fashion hire that Raven has brought on to help her with her artistry. So that is really awesome that Disney has now brought on their first trans character on Disney Channel of all places. I mean, I think that's a great start for the network. 20,000... 000-
1: in, I, I, I'm not gonna praise them for.
0: I'm not praising it. them. I'm just saying it's about time <laughs> that they've. That's about time that they've done
10: it. No, I agree with that. It's just like
0: I, I know. It's like ugh, it's about time.
10: Isn't the end? Yeah, I did acting stuff in 2015 and. Disney was one of the producers. Um, I don't know if you've heard of uh, IMTA, the International uh, Talent and Model Association. It's a convention that happens every year. There's one in New York and one in L.A. But I went to New York and Disney was one of the producers that was there and basically... I did not have a good experience with them. No, you wouldn't have. Um,
0: How could you? Yeah. (laughs)
10: They, They did not like me. I didn't really get anywhere with that because my, um, Agency was also from Ohio, and they kind of set me up to fail.
0: Very bad Yeah, I'd me. say it's Disney is definitely a company that uh, did not stand for the LGBTQ plus community during the "Don't Say Gay" uh, fiasco back early in uh, Florida back in the early two thousand twenty two. That's this year. It's like, psycho. <laughs> so much has happened since that time, but they they didn't do anything, and then they stood up and said, "Oh, well, we don't stand for it." After they funded the politicians that voted for the bill, so there's, there's not much merit to that. So Ata, can I, can we ask you a few questions before we hop off to our next interview? Sure. Let me ask you.
14: What got you into um, Japanese culture and Shintoism so deeply?
10: My dad is Japanese, but I was disconnected from him because my mom and him separated and he went back to Japan and I was raised by my mom here. And, but then when I, graduated from high school. I went to Japan and I lived for a couple of years and I I make music and I don't know if you're familiar with the style Visual K, but I do a crossover between Visual K and hip-hop and uh, Visual K, I always say, is like it's uh, a lot of people try to compare it to glam rock, but it's different because Visual K is not just about, it is a lot of genres. Like you can have a Visual K song that is literally a pop song or a power ballad or a hip hop track or a rock song or metal. It can be any genre. What makes it Visual K is the way it's presented. Um, It's it's a lot about the aesthetic. So I always say Visual K is half music, half aesthetic. Um, And besides that, I just started getting into Shintoism because... I like I said, I was never really I was never really religious. I was more on the scientific end and more of an existentialist. Like I feel the things that the choices you make is what affects your life. I still believe that way, but um I've just felt more connected to my cultural spirituality. And I don't know, just something shifted since COVID hit and everything. I just felt like there's just something more there. Oh.
0: In October, we sat down with Mariana Basket and explored nationalism, Nazis, and neuroscience. That was an incredible episode, and we learned so much. Let's take a listen to that. Mariana, let me ask you that. Where in the mind does this nationalistic uh, mindset come about?
15: Well, I mean, I, I find that at the, the core of it, nationalistic ideology is coming from like a fear of the other. Um, but like that fear isn't new for us as a species, like there has been at least nine human species on this earth, and now there's only one. Um, and while some of that is integration, like we have seen things like um, Neanderthal DNA as part of the human uh, homo sapien genome, um, a notable amount of that loss is of diversity in, in the homo genus is going to be coming from war simply homo sapiens attacking and killing the other. Um, and so oh in, in modern day, we, we don't have another humanoid race that we can other. And so we've come to a point that it's media and politicians creating these false dichotomies um, in the assurance again, of control of people and taking that to an extreme level. Um, So really, I I feel like nationalistic ideology as a thing is a natural evolutionary mechanism um, that really has been weaponized by this world and this culture. I love that answer so much.
0: So so I'm thinking about that and I'm like, so does that, is that, is that where this like, that systematic, is that where that racism and that, that comes from, like our hatred for other people, like we're like, you know, we're like, is it, is it deep-seated and, like, we erased all the other human types of species and now we're going to, we're this, this certain group that has power is going to erase all other uh, races of humanity because they don't match the, is I that? Mean, I mean, I hope not. But That's... isn't that what we're seeing by some of those, like, groups?
15: Yes. There there are some people that, unfortunately, are only looking for fellow White people of their own age, of their own specific nationality, looking for that that ridiculous ethno-state because they somehow have a, a belief that the idea of diversity is is going to lessen them as ridiculous as that is.
0: We also spent some time this season with Mr. Gay Indiana himself, A.J. Furness. We talked a little dance, drag, and the art of creativity and being yourself. Let's listen to that.
16: And from then on, um, I pretty much started dancing. Um, I always kind of dance, you know. You know, the family get-togethers, you know, back in the day, chop chop slide, things like that. Electric
3: slide. Shuffle. Um, I have more,
16: more rhythm than most of my family, so I still don't know where I get it from. Um, but <laughs> I knew I could. So um yeah it just it just it just pushed me into wondering like hmm okay you know start watching music videos more start seeing things like Ooh. I can do that I can do that um but it wasn't until uh 15 16 is when I actually got into got into dance so it's just been it's just been like a little lifeline you know it's it's, I whenever I teach kids I just say dance is where you come to relieve all things you're going through whether it's stress whether it's anger whether it's sadness whether it's i just had a bad day today whether it's you know something you just don't want to think about is that's what dance is that's what that art form is 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 pushing out that negative energy through your movements and and just getting that out out of your life you know put that energy into your movement and and just push it out just get rid of it and I don't think people really realize how important or how much we already do it. Like, if we go to a club, you know, you might have had a rough work day and you go to a club, you know, you got your drinks, yeah, but as soon as you are going to the dance floor, it's like, oh, you know, but and you leave the club, you're like, oh, i'm tired but i feel great <laughs> i mean you could be hungover, but <laughs> you you got out that negative energy you got rid of it and you left it on the dance floor or at the bar depending on your choice but it's gone because you know that's that's what that is it's like a little a quick little give me up a quick little adrenaline rush without the drugs
2: there's been many
16: like dances throughout the years that represented something for instance like there's the rain dance the sun dance the um i was just looking up some actually kyle was very intrigued um you know native americans used to dance a lot to illustrate different purposes and ritualistic ceremonies um i mean we
0: as a culture everything is so entwined in dance i mean look at tiktok look at dancing with the stars which just now
16: The dance trends on TikTok right now, like you can go viral from doing the current dance trend. It's like it's a little eight count, eight, 16 count dance, or like a little new one, a little scoop shuffle thing. <laughs> oh my God,
0: it's so, it is the coolest thing. I mean, we are yeah. dancers.
16: We are dancers and
0: singers. We are, we are the mystic people of, of you know, this, we I
16: are agree. artists, all of us. We're all artists in one way or another. Art rules Fortnite the world. has dancing. It rules the world. And, mm-hmm. uh, and there's nothing
1: like a victory dance after you've just annihilated your opponents, especially okay. in Fortnite.
16: Mm-hmm.
1: Do the Turk dance. Tonight, so.
16: Got a new um, got a new title with the job, you know. Found some money in the street.
1: <laughs> yep, start dancing. <laughs> Let's use the restroom,
16: so you dance.
1: <laughs> Like, oh, I need to use the restroom. I'm going to start dancing for some reason because it suits my achy bladder. So, yeah, the pee
16: dance. Yeah, we all know mm-hmm. that one. Got yeah, the little bounce to the side to side. You know, gotta yeah, I'm like left foot, right foot, left
1: foot, right foot, left foot, right foot, left. Oh, I gotta pee. Oh, I gotta pee. Like, oh, you're singing now too. I'm yeah. turning this into an art form because it distracts my crazy brain.
16: Or that one when you're cold outside, waiting in line, get the little, little yeah, you that little <laughs> shuffle. <Like, laughs> Try to, 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 right, to the left, to the right,
1: to the left. Got to keep this body
16: warm. <laughs> And, and you know, you dance without even knowing you're dancing sometimes. Like, you, you're sitting at a desk right now. You just, like, you know, bug your head.
1: It's a dance. You know uh, I, I've been driving in my car more recently with, um and being on this Alexa. It's just like I find myself dancing for like no fucking reason. I'm just like, all right, let's do the little head roll from whatever that one movie was. Another, uh, Rush, hour.
16: Rush Hour. Uh, oh, yeah, Rush Hour. Why yeah. Yeah.
0: Uh, mm. am I doing this? <laughs> <All right. laughs> You teach dance out there in Fort Wayne, Indiana, is that right? Yeah. So how'd that get, how, can you tell me more about how that got started and your involvement with the uh, the club, After Dark, that you're, uh, you're a part of, and the various communities out there in Indiana that you perform at?
16: Well, I started technically teaching dance when I was 16 at the Boys and Girls Club. Uh, um... So what happened was, again, I was, I was I was one of those kids that was like, I'm going to grow up and I'll be a professional choreographer, a backup dancer. And this is what I want to do. This is what I love to do. Um, but I also was someone who always gave, gave opportunities and made opportunities through dance. So around 16 um, is when I joined my first studio. But however, I created uh, my first summer dance group and we basically created the routines and we went around the certain um festivals and events and parades and we and we danced the routine that we created and from then i'm like hmm okay you know this is cool so up to like probably four or five years each those summers was the same thing a different group or the same group or different people and at summertime we'll all get together and we'll Go around and do dances, but building that relationship with the uh, the staff member who held over that her name was Miss Ayers Delenia Ayers. Um, she went to a middle school, and she invited me and a couple other people from that group that we became close with, and she said, "I want you to come volunteer and do what you guys do because we did dance, we did cheer. I didn't do cheer. I wanted to, did not. Um, we did dance, they did cheer, and it's like." Come, come to the just middle school for us, uh, for me, not even, not even the, the school itself, for me, cause I'm asking and teach these kids because she was very big on getting kids out of trouble and making them do something productive and dance and stuff was that thing. She wasn't a dancer, but she knew talent and she knew kids that were able to with the right tools. Kind of like we talked about earlier, teachers teaching with the right tools. Um, so we that and that started like me at 17. I was going to this middle school, 17, 18. I still go there to this day, and I'm 13 now. Um, and just teaching middle schoolers, you know, or getting them to move or helping them with cheers or whatever the case may be. And then from then, that catapulted me into getting into different um situations. Like there was a local studio here with local artists that needed um. A choreographer for them I did that for a little bit and then there's like another um through my studio I went to I got connected with this this group called BOU voices in unity and they're like choir a kid's choir but they're a mix of ages mostly focused on kids but still like a mix of ages and I started doing like their praise celebrations or their June concerts which is like a tribute you know so it's like starting from here and then with the right networking and connections or people just knowing of me or hearing of me or referring me is how I got into all these other um, situations and events. So that's basically goes
5: that basically- It goes to show that if you put your passions out there, opportunities will present themselves to you. Like people saw you doing what you love to do and they're like, oh, you're really talented at this. Please teach yeah. other people how to do it.
0: Well, that was a long episode, but I, I think that uh, it's important that we take time to visit back to some of the great people that we've had on this show, and and we wouldn't have been able to do it without Lucy Balzano, Aria Lackey, Cynthia Grace, Mariana Vasquez, and Athena Pernaque. This was this was so good, Aria. Thanks for being here with us today.
5: Pleasure as always,
0: Lucy. Thank you for being here with us. As always. You're
1: welcome. Oh. You're welcome for allow me allowing you to bask
16: in my ambience.
5: Well at, at this point you probably have enough contents. You could just dump it all into an AI script generator. And do like a deep fake. Yeah. <laughs> do <laughs> a you don't even need co-hosts at this point. We have the technology. <laughs> you're just we gonna give
15: it. us a phonetic library to read? <laughs>
5: I would love to hear that episode where it's just an, an AI script, like pulling from all the stupid in jokes and memes we've developed throughout the show. I <laughs> Today, I midterms the redacted with Patrick Warburton discuss. <laughs>